This film is very much grounded in the late 20s. And even though the whole series has very much dealt with that kind of upstairs, downstairs dynamic, for me, it's sometimes overly familiar because so many films and TV shows have dealt with it. But what I found intriguing here is the fact that it's the late 20s. And without spoiling anything specifically within the plot, there are some things that happen in the film that start to shake up that upstairs, downstairs dichotomy a bit. And I'm thinking that, you know, correspondingly in society, these rich families still have a house full of servants and you know where you stand quite literally, right? And yet there are indications that things are starting to shake up a bit. And if this series were to go into the 1930s and goodness knows even beyond that, the fact that the old class system is not exactly falling apart, but it's getting rattled a bit. And there may be more social mobility in the years ahead. Hello, and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. Today, we're gonna to talk about Downton Abbey, A New Era, and a movie called Men. And we're gonna start off with Downton Abbey. So Mike, I think we talked about the, the original Downton Abbey back when it came out, but I can't remember if you were a fan of the show or not. It's so easy to answer that, Maria. I was not particularly a, a fan of the show, but I got to add, and I'm smiling about this because so many of my friends and acquaintances, et cetera, are enormous fans of it. So even as this most recent film was about to come out, so many people asked me about it. And I thought, gosh, I, they, I wish they would ask me about something else, you know? So anyway, to cut to the quick on that, I'm, I'm well aware of it. And certainly, you know, it's part of the culture, but no, I was not a fan. And you and I did actually on an earlier episode talk about the first feature film. So we've already gone over some of that, but that was 2019. So we have to kind of refresh ourselves on all of that. Wow, pre-pandemic. I mean, just like before That's the flood how, kind of thing. Antediluvian. I know. How long right? ago it was, right? Well, I am a huge Downton Abbey fan, so I was very much looking forward to seeing this. Saw it with a group of like-minded fans and absolutely loved, you know, going back to the house, the characters. So, Mike, any questions you have about, like, Downton Abbey lore, feel free to ask. But I think I want to jump right into what I know resonated with you as a film professor and historian, which was the reference to the movie that they were shooting at the house at Downton Abbey and all of the jokes that they made about film industry and the characters that you've grown to know and love from the series, making all of these, you know, side eyes and, you know, snarky remarks about, you know, these film people who were, you know, invading their space and, and ruining everything. And there's some, some things we can liken to Alfred Hitchcock's blackmail in terms of somebody else, you know, doing the talking while another actress is doing the acting and even singing in the rain. So I thought I would lob that one at you first, Mike, in terms of the callback to really classic movies that we use in our classes. Thank you for the lob, and I, <laughs> I, I enjoy hitting it back your, your way. Just to set the, the, the stage here for this, one thing about the overall Downton Abbey series is, as Marie knows much better than I do, the, the TV series was for, what, six seasons? There was an earlier feature film, 2019. The point I'd want to make very quickly here is that even though it's easy to kind of smile about Downton Abbey as cinematic comfort food, which it is, it does reference actual historical events in the time span covered. And, you know, for me, even, even when people are suffering through some of these events, I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, but what a great house. You know, I, I should suffer in such comfort. Uh, it was servants to bring me tea when I'm really particularly depressed or something. But anyway, in terms of uh, current events uh, of their era, 
going back to when the series started, there was the sinking of the Titanic in 1912, and it's come up through World War I and so on. Anyway, the film we're currently talking about, after all, has the subtitle, if you will, A New Era, Downton Abbey, A New Era. So we've now moved into the late 1920s. Everything entailed by that in terms of that flapper era, that jazz age, all the cliches that come to mind there. And the fact that those topical references would include the cinema or kinema, as one character likes to mispronounce it in a way. And so I'm very mixed feelings about this. I'll tell you why. The movie geek in me immediately rose to the bait. Yes, you're right. That's why when you lobbed it to me, you said, oh, my gosh, you know, they mentioned, you know, certain actors and, and, and just what was going on in silent film, which. It's a great love of mine. And so, sure. And even though I'm not a fan of Downton Abbey overall, I'm definitely a fan of the, those particular references. And, and why, why is cinema so directly involved here? So just to give the, the premise for this feature film, what happens oftentimes is, you know, you can be in a really great country house. I want to call it a mansion or a palace. And yet, you know, not that you're poor, but the house costs a lot to keep up. All those servants, all that repair work. So cutting to the quick on that one, it turns out the house needs a new roof. And if you and I think it's an issue when our houses deal with that, imagine if you own, a, you know, a castle, as I like to call it, like this one, what the cost would be. So anyway, the one family member who's sort of, you know, keeping house and, and running affairs there decides that the best way to foot the bill for the roof repairs and all that would be to allow a film company to come in and make a film on location and using some of the family members and some of their servants, this is very much an upstairs downstairs situation, as extras and as it turns out, even cast members, if you will. Now, that's a kind of amusing premise. But I immediately started to draw back and carp at it, Marie, for two reasons. One is a kind of generic reason, namely that I know a lot of silent films were shot not only on location, but outdoors, really early films, just go out in nature, turn on the camera and so on. By the 1920s, most feature film production, and this is a feature film that's being shot there, would have been done in the studio with maybe some location work, but pretty much studio bound. It would be really unusual, I don't want to say unprecedented, but really unusual to decide, we're going to make this whole movie in your house. <laughs> that bothered me a bit because it's, film production just didn't work that way for the most part. So you have to accept that with a, a large grain of salt that for the sake of the story, you need the film crew not on location, but sort of like living with you. Uh, so that was my sort of one general uh, reservation about it. The second one was a much more specific reservation and it actually kind of rankled after a while. It turns out that this is a, you know, a silent film, but it's being shot in that same period as you know, Hitchcock was working on, on, you know, on films like Blackmail and so on, but at that transitional moment where oftentimes, and this is very true to film history, Films in 1928, 29, they would start shooting as a silent film. And then everyone would say, oh my God, the jazz singer, you know, we, we got to catch up. We got to, well, can we go back and reshoot scenes? Can, can we post, can we put sound in one way or another? Anyway, you get these hybrid films like, like the, that Hitchcock in that period where you start shooting it silent and then in, in mid-production you switch to sound. And to our sensibility today, it can be awkward watching it, but it's also fascinating as to technologically where they were at that point, how they dealt with it as best they could. So here's my, my major reservation on that second point, namely, it turns out, not surprisingly, that in terms of the male and female leads, the female co-star of this film, she has a really beautiful appearance and she plays an elegant character. However, when she goes to speak, it's a really pronounced Cockney accent. 
that even some of the servants might sort of look askance at. You know, she's really, you know, from the hood, as they would say, I suppose, in the East End of London. And so the thing is, what are they going to do? And they try their best to work with her. You can imagine, take after take, she's going to bungle the line readings. So it is funny. By the same token, it is such a copycat of Lena Lamont. <laughs> and Singing in the Rain, which is such a one of the all-time great musicals, of course, and that's one of the absolute best aspects of that film. It, it's just that Lena Lamont, the moment she goes to talk, it's just hilarious how she mangles the English language. And then that's, that's of course, then where the, the Debbie Reynolds character, this, you know, no count, you know, extra, if you will, is going to dub her, particularly for, well, dialogue and, and singing, crucially, Singing in the Rain. So anyway, that works incredibly well in Singing in the Rain to use not just the same device, but almost moment to moment, like Xeroxing a script or something, right? To take that to that extreme, Marie, that actually bothered me a bit. I just thought, uh, I mean, whether the audience gets it or not, appreciates it or not, it just seemed like kind of shameless to lift that wholesale from Singing in the Rain. How do you feel about that? Because it actually did kind of bother me after a while. I sort of saw it as a, like a companion that was trying to actually reach people who were familiar with it and feel like, something similar. And I did think it was trying to say something about, you know, the character that you mentioned with the Cockney accent. She was very successful as a silent film star. But as soon as things went over to sound, suddenly her career was going to take a completely different turn. And what what I thought was super charming was that she found when she tried to imitate an American accent, she was pretty successful at that. And then you could see she was probably going to go to America and be successful in Hollywood, which was kind of a nice story arc. And what I will say, I think this movie does very successfully, is give all of your favorite characters, you get to meet them again, find out what they're doing. And not that everybody lives happily ever after, but you get a way to sort of place them in the story as you walk away. And of course, I think the the main character they were focusing on was, of course, Dame Maggie Smith, because how much longer are we going to have her? And the story revolves around, you know, a possible scandal from her youth. And when is that not fun? And the whole upstairs, downstairs aspect of it is so much of what is pleasurable about watching Downton Abbey, the series, where you're involved with the machinations and intrigue that's going on with the characters who have all of this money and then meanwhile there's all the people keeping everything going who are gossiping and comparing notes and have their own take on things so the upstairs folks are maybe sort of intrigued by the fact that there's going to be a movie shot you know on the grounds but everybody downstairs is just abuzz with excitement because the movie people are coming and that sort of reality of you know people who are above it versus people who are very excited about it is kind of a nice way to look at, you know, audiences for theater at the time. I also wanted to make sure I mentioned that the fact that the movie was made at Downton helped to fund a new roof because the actual high cleric castle was not in good shape. So I kind of like the way art imitates life or life imitates art where, you know, you get a roof out of it and you kind of need one, just like they said in the movie. And the way they do it is by being involved in a movie. I like 
that kind of overlap. Did you like, like that aspect, Mike? I, Marie, I love that aspect of it. As, as I was reading about the film, when I realized that the house where they shot it itself needed a new roof and having the film production there would provide it, that's marvelous. I mean, talk about something that's self-reflexive there, you know, movies about movies about et cetera. And anyway, you get a new roof out of the deal. So I like that a lot. The other thing I liked about what you said is the fact that Downton Abbey, you know, essentially is franchise filmmaking. And even though I'm not like a huge fan of the series, as I keep telling myself in the world, one well, thing I do, I've seen enough of it. I know it well enough now that have, since you and I talked about the previous film in 2019, I was also very interested in catching up with the same characters. You know them better than I do, but particularly for the Dowager Countess. I just love saying that, the Dowager Countess, the Maggie Smith character. She is priceless. I mean, we all know that, but just every every moment she's in, I wish she were in the film a little bit more even, but every moment she's in it is just absolutely wonderful. And the film is keenly aware of that because she's nearing the end of her life and characters are speculating about her imminent demise. And she jokes about that kind of mordantly, like, you know, as if they're holding vigil over her all, already. But what, what I like about the story, the, the extent to which it actually directly factors that in is uh, when Marie mentioned, you know, this potential scandal from her youth. Well, what was that? Well, way back in 1865, I think it was, she had been in France and had, had uh, you know, perhaps a, a love affair with a, with a French aristocrat and so on. Anyway, long story short there, and then this is, uh, you know, more on the long side than the short side, there's now speculation in the late 1920s that for some reason, she's been left this villa in France. And was it be like a parting gift from what might have been a long ago lover and so on? And of course, they look at this, you know, this ancient woman ensconced in her bedroom, like, could she have had an affair at some point? I mean, you know, in Edwardian England, that these scandal is shocking, right? That's decades before she might have. And that's actually well handled within the film. And what I also found intriguing here was much as a film like this love staying in the country house. Here we have at least two palaces to visit. We have the English country house and we have the French equivalent, the, the villa. And some of the characters have to actually go visit France to check out this place that might become theirs and also try to scope out what happened way back in the mid 19th century there. And I thought cinematically, you know, the film itself runs a little over two hours and it's merited in, in that basic sense. The fact that you have much of it transpiring in England, our familiar turf, and then also, though, some French territory and the film, you know, cross cuts that way. And I thought that was rather successful, actually, in terms of pulling these strands of the story together. Now, I'm not going to spoil anything in terms of what's the real situation here, but the film has you thinking about that as you're watching it. You know, what's going on in England? What's going on in France? And as importantly, what might have gone in, on in France all those decades ago? And then you do get really endearing moments where people will ask the Maggie Smith character about that. And just, she doesn't have to even say anything, just the look on her face, you know, in terms of, well, you, you know, almost like the raised eyebrow. You don't think I could have had an affair, you know, in 1865. And so I, I thought all that was very, really very enjoyable in, in, in the film. And the film overall, I did enjoy it. I mean, I'm not a big fan of it, but, but uh, you know, as, as cinematic comfort food, uh, it really was a pleasure to watch. It was really uh, easy to watch. And I don't, I'm not saying that as a backhanded compliment. It really was enjoyable to watch this film. They make a point of, there was like a parallel story with Maggie Smith and the Michelle Dockery character, because they say to Mary, who's played by Michelle Dockery, that, you know, you will one day become, you know, Maggie Smith. So, you know, and she's got that steely resolve. So you can sort of see she is the one who is going to follow in her grandmother's footsteps. But the backstory of Maggie Smith is that while married, she visited the south of France and had this relationship, which is, you know, you don't know enough about it. Meanwhile, the Mary character, her husband is away. 
and she is being wooed by another man as well. So while you're waiting to see what she does about that, you are kind of comparing and contrasting that with that backstory of what her grandmother did, which sort of gives you an opportunity to see, well, will she do the same thing? Will she do something different? How much does she really like the Maggie Smith character? And you have to absolutely love the fact that Maggie Smith gets the best lines, such as something to the effect of, do I look like someone who would turn down a French villa? Well, Maria, I like a lot of the parallels in the film, as you pointed out very astutely between generations. Uh, and, you know, not that nowadays we shrug off adultery, but certainly back uh, in the 20s and certainly back in the 1860s, the mere prospect of an adulterous relationship could be so scandalous. And so in terms of what's going on in the 20s, what might or might not have gone on in the 1860s, so between generations that way. And as I've mentioned, also parallels between life among the English aristocracy and, and among the French aristocracy, if you will. They're not identical, and, and the film has some fun with that, the cultural differences, and kind of not exactly mistrust, but just uncertainty that they do things a little differently there. So since we're talking about social relations here, I wanted to ask you something. This film is very much grounded in the late 20s. And even though the whole series has very much dealt with that kind of upstairs, downstairs dynamic, for me, it's sometimes overly familiar because so many films and TV shows have dealt with it. But what I found intriguing here is the fact that it's the late 20s. And without spoiling anything specifically within the plot, there are some things that happen in the film that start to shake up that upstairs-downstairs dichotomy a bit. And I'm thinking that, you know, correspondingly in society, these rich families still have a house full of servants, and you know where you stand, quite literally, right? And yet there are indications that things are starting to shake up a bit. And if this series were to go into the 1930s, and goodness knows even beyond that, the fact that the old class system is not exactly falling apart, but it's getting rattled a bit. And there may be more social mobility in the years ahead. Marie, what were your thoughts about that? Because you followed the whole series very closely, and it was so class-bound. And don't you think in this film there's some indications that things are starting to loosen up just a bit? Yes, and that's actually, you know, as the series kind of gets into more familiar territory, you see that the old ways are falling away and everybody's trying to figure out where they fit into the new way of thinking. What's intriguing about this movie is that it's clear that the downstairs folks, the workers, are enchanted by the the glitter and the celebrity of the people who are making movies where the regular aristocrats are not impressed. However, I did want to make sure that I mentioned that in terms of the threads that you get to follow for the folks downstairs. You get this wonderful cameo appearance, not really a cameo, it's a full role, by Dominic West, who, you know, if you've watched The Wire, you know, you know who Dominic West is. So in terms of Baltimore folks, it's such a wonderful moment and he's so good at it. And I also want to, you know, mention that when he was doing The Wire, he got elocution lessons from Betty Ann Lang from HCC to make him sound like an American rather than the British guy that he is. So, you know, HCC plugged there that, you know, that they were able to, you know, make him sound like an American guy for The Wire. And having him come back in this, I recognized him immediately, but I couldn't place him. And as soon as I recognized who he was, it was such a great moment. It was such a wonderful role for him. And I thought that was one of the highlights of the movie. Yeah, I agree with you. His performance is really one of the most enjoyable in the film. And um, again, I can't say too much more about his character in terms of what happens, but there are things that shake up that upstairs-downstairs 
dynamic, and he's sort of at the heart of that too. And it has to do also in terms of where people have their relationships, whether extramarital or, or, or otherwise. And the film actually has some, I'll say some fun with that, because it's, it's giving us a society in which, for instance, uh, I'll, I'll give an innocuous example that's easy to share without spoiling anything. As they're making this movie in the house, they need extras, right? And yeah, you're going to have dinner table scenes, and you need to have, you know, 25 people at the table and, and servants and this and that. And if the aristocrats who actually live in this house are not exactly enthusiastic about appearing in a movie, gosh, the servants are really eager to dress up like the swells and rather than serving dinner, be served dinner. And that's it. There are some very funny scenes along those lines. And for me, as a film professor and sort of studying the demographics of movie making and movie going back in that era, you know, a reminder that in the 19 teens and certainly into the 20s, so much of the core audience would have been like what we would call working class through through middle class. A lot of upper crust people, at least initially, would have sort of turned up their noses at movies as being like real lowbrow. You know, that, that's for you know, if you're an immigrant right off the boat or something, you know, you go to a Nickelodeon and you watch a movie. But we go to the opera. We go to the symphony, that kind of snooty attitude. Now, that's in the early years of film going. But, you know, into the 20s, that's changing. But an indication that you're ready audience, your built-in audience, oftentimes would be working-class people who love going to the movies and, not surprisingly, love being in the movies. They don't look on it as being embarrassing or shameful or anything, you know, beneath their station. No, they can rise above their station, to put it bluntly that way. They get to dress up like, you know, it's a master-servant dynamic. They get to dress up like the, the master of the house, the mistress of the house. And again, the movie has a lot of fun with that. And for me, I ended up enjoying, Marie, you're absolutely right with your earlier observation. For me, as, as a a movie buff, and particularly of films in that era, how much fun, in effect, to have the servants now at the table being served dinner. It was a wonderful touch. Plus all the, you know, the backhanded comments about, you know, film people shudder, you know, while they're in a movie, right? You know, just the irony of that kind of, of that kind of situation. So, I mean, if you are a Downton Abbey fan, this is a wonderful movie because it's like a family reunion where you get to catch up with everybody, find out how everybody's doing, it closes lots of loops. So, and by the way, you know, clocked in just slightly over two hours, which, you know, we talk all the time about how important that is. But we should shift gears now, Mike, and talk about this movie, Men, which I went to see because, you know, I read some reviews about it. It sounded intriguing. This is not my genre at all. So I'm going to start off by saying I thought this movie was a hot mess. And what did you think? I thought it was a real mess, and we should explain the mess to our audience. Marie doesn't particularly like horror films, and so she'll usually try to avoid them. Meantime, I go to them because I'm a glutton for punishment. I watch anything, right? And then she'll say, well, how gory was it? How grotesque? And then take the kind of satisfaction in the fact that I watched it and she did not, right? They're like buckets of blood that poured on me, but not, not on her. So this is very much a film set in England. And in terms of the premise for it, got to be careful how much we say, but I can safely say that Jessie Buckley plays a young woman who's living in London. Her husband dies under um, mysterious circumstances, appears to be a suicide, but who knows? The film's going to jump around with flashbacks, etc. So you'll discover what you need to know, or at least enough of it watching the film. But basically, to cut to the quick on this, she feels like she needs to get out of town, basically. She's got to get out of that London flat where, where you know, this horrible thing happened. 
And so she decides to rent a cottage in the Cotswolds. And it's the bucolic English countryside. Who wouldn't want to go there? How relaxing. Well, you know what? You know, if you try to go away from your troubles, your troubles will follow you, particularly in a horror film. Think about all the times where somebody's like in a haunted house or, or a, a perturbed house, a troubled house. <laughs> And they decide they should pick up and go. They should go somewhere else. Well, you know what? Ghosts can travel too. And, and whether the spirits are actual or psychological, they're in the baggage that you take with you. So anyway, she gets to this, this wonderful cottage. But what's really an ominous sign here is that she's very much on her own. It's bad enough to have these things happen in her life. And she does have some friends, but she's living by herself in this rented cottage. And already there are some warning signs that, you know, all might not be well here as well. She's got this landlord who's like friendly, but what I call creepy friendly. And then you find out that the, uh, the actor playing the landlord, Rory Kinnear, actually, and this is one of the most bizarre aspects of the film. He plays so many of the male roles, and I mean a real diversity of roles. He plays a vicar. He plays a policeman. He plays a pub owner. And when I say plays, what I mean is you have these characters of different dimensions by that. And I don't mean like, like uh, you know, mega, megaverse or something. I, I mean, different dimensions in terms of, you know, somebody's tall, somebody's short, somebody's a kid, someone's a, an old man. Anyway, whatever the character is in, in terms of physical stature and age and all that, the same actor uh, has his face kind of plastered on there. And the fact that it's really bizarre that that's the case. Secondly, that she doesn't seem to notice that it's the same face on all these guys, but she's creeped out by all of them. They're all men after all. Where the film's a total mess for me, let me let me really go to the jugular on this, where it's a total mess is the fact that the film is so loaded with references. There are references to Leda and the Swan and to Ulysses, and you name it. Take anything from mythology or history. Somewhere in the film there's a reference. There's even a reference early in the film where she picks an apple from a tree, and she's warned not to do that. Gosh, might that be Eve picking an apple? So the reason I really turned against this film and actively disliked it when recalled to the hot mess is, all of that gets piled into the film. It's just like a grab bag of cinematic and mythological references. And there's like no rhyme or reason after a while. It's just like, well, let's do this, let's do that. And after a while, I thought, oh, brother, I mean, you know, and what more could happen to her? Maria, I think that's what you're getting at, that they just shovel so much into it that it doesn't make any kind of sense. It's just arbitrary after a while, don't you think? You know, the notes I made to myself while I was watching it, because I just thought it was so weird. And there were so many moments I had to look away because, you know, it was time to like press that gore button or, you know, the shock button was it made Eraserhead, head, the weirdest movie I'd ever seen to date, seem like a Disney princess movie. You know, it just was so bizarre. But I want to ask you, I thought that the conceit of having Rory Kinnear play so many different roles. Why? What was the point of that? Well, it would seem to be the fact that, you know, her marriage was so troubled. So, you know, she and a man not getting along and they have some ugly arguments before whatever happens, happens. But he's no longer on the scene. He's dead. And then all the men she'll meet in this village, almost all of them will be menacing in one way or another. And the fact that they all have the same face, namely that, you know, all these men are man, mankind, if you will. And she is she's Eve taking that apple off the tree. I mean, I can't say any of this without kind of laughing because the film is so overloaded with those mythological references and that weight. It's just not warranted. It's not it goes beyond not being ex explained. It's just like bizarre for the sake of being bizarre. So towards the end of the film, so many strange things happen. I just want to sort of like throw up my hands like, oh, well, wh whatever. It's one of those films where I just say whatever after a while. And I don't really care. I'm just thinking, what are they after here? What's this supposed to be about? Maria, I think I, you and I very much share this by way of response. I love your expression, hot mess. It's a totally hot mess. 
it's like, let's just throw everything in there and maybe yeah. something will, will resonate. I'm not sure that was successful, but as a last thought of all the titles you could come up with, why just men? Well, again, Maria, it's essentially building a case that, that you know, her, the man in her life was bad news in various ways. And ergo, like all men are, all men have the same face, if you will, men. So um, I, I don't know if I should even comment on that as a man. What should I say? Did I feel threatened by it? Or did I feel guilty? Whatever. But, but it's so heavy handed. Let me leave it at that. It's just so heavy handed that wherever you are in terms of, you know, politics, it's just so, so excruciatingly uh, thematically heavy that it's a turnoff. You know what I mean? Even if there's a valid case to be made there, it's like, oh, give me a break here. And then, and then it just th throws everything it can at the screen. And some of it's like, what special effect could we use next? And some of them are quite arresting, but but why? What? You know? And so it's just like bizarre for the sake of being bizarre after all. So whatever message might have been there, you know, in terms of some tract or polemic, I think gets squandered. I mean, it's not the argument's not even there after all. It's just one effect after another. I just want to end by saying that the director, Alex Garland, people might know him from a better movie called Ex Machina. This, I think, was just a misguided foray into insanity. But that does bring us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to check out our other podcasts at dragondigitalradio.podbean.com and also under Dragon Digital Radio on Pandora and Spotify. And we'll see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.